There is a battle going on today for the heart and soul of America, and the right side must win. It's time for America Can We Talk with Debbie George Addis. On America Can We Talk, we talk truth about America and why it matters to you. America Can We Talk starts now. And welcome to America Can We Talk. This is Debbie Georgiatis. I hate talking over on music because we love our theme music so much. We just have fabulous patriotic theme music. Well, welcome to America Can We Talk. This week is the, we're at the in-between weekend between the GOP convention. Uh, last week has ended and the Democrat convention starts tomorrow. And so here on America Can We Talk, I'm your host, Debbie Georgiatis. We talk truth about America and we're going to talk about those conventions and particularly want to start with Donald Trump's closing speech If any of you did not watch his closing speech, you can do two things. You can Google it, and I'm sure you can go back and watch it, uh, just, you know, watch a video of it, or you can print out a copy of it. But what this speech did says so much about America, and it says a lot, actually, about our media. And so I want to just hit some high points of it and talk to you, uh, tell you what the media did with this. To start with, I watched the speech live, and not in person, at home, and afterward, immediately after his speech was finished, there was a poll done by those who had watched Donald Trump's closing speech and, you know, accepting the nomination for the presidency of the United States for the Republican Party. The poll found that 56% of the speech viewers said after watching Donald Trump's speech, they were more likely to vote for him after seeing him formally accept the GOP nomination. 32% of viewers said didn't have any effect either way, and a mere 10% said the speech made them less likely to cast their vote for Trump. Well, you know what? Hillary Clinton and the Democrats and their echo chamber in the media were having none of this. They were not going to agree that Donald Trump gave a speech that was powerful and it he did and i want to tell you in just a moment what his powerful speech was all about what he said but i first want to share with you something hillary clinton spoke the next day and she was talking about don trump's speech and she tried to say america everything is great and flowery and wonderful in america and then she said but then here's what she had to say in clip one about don trump's speech instead i heard about Donald Trump's dark and divisive vision. Last night's speech took it to a whole new level. He offered a lot of fear and anger and resentment. You know, I'll tell you, Hillary Clinton, we're going to play, have another segment uh, in coming up shortly or actually in the next 15 minutes, but this depiction of Donald Trump's speech as dark was picked up by the media. And I will share with you later by how many sources they got the code word from Hillary. You have to call Donald Trump's speech dark. You have to say dark, 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 dark. I mean, I'm telling you, dozens of media outlets, President Obama weighed in, complained about Donald Trump's speech. And I'm going to tell you why his speech resonated with so many voters. Because Donald Trump says the hard things. He says things that few politicians say. He He talks truth about America. Now, anyone who listens to this show knows he was not my first choice for president, but he's our nominee, and you have him or Hillary. It's not even close. In my view, you have to support Donald Trump, but that does not mean you have to agree with everything he says, and it doesn't mean you don't criticize him for many things he says and does, which I will feel free to do when criticism is justified. I'm going to hit a couple points Donald Trump said in his speech that is being depicted as so dark. He, he talked about the reality that homicide statistics are up. In the big cities in America, there are more homicides occurring 
And it is in conjunction with or following on the movement by the Obama administration and the Democrats of this constant vilification of the police, of exaggerating cases um, in which police acted, acted uh, you know, in self-defense and end up killing someone and letting the left carry a false story about many of those instances we've talked about many times. He talked about, Donald Trump talked about the number of police officers up, being, being killed up. We're, we're way up over last year's numbers. He talked about illegal immigration. He talked about the economy, that four in 10 African-Americans in America live in poverty. He talked about household incomes being down under President Obama. He talked about our trade deficit being worse. He talked about the just enormous, impossibly large national debt, which has swelled to unbelievable numbers under President Obama. He talked about the international humiliation under President Obama and Hillary Clinton as his Secretary of State with Iranians capturing our soldiers. Soldiers, Syria, the red line that wasn't really a red line at all. Libya, we essentially created ISIS by our ridiculous policies in Libya, taking out a dictator who didn't need to be taken out. So we gave a home to the creation of ISIS. He talked about the legacy of Hillary, death, destruction, terrorism, and weakness. I'll tell you something else. Here's really why Donald Trump's speech resonated with the voters. We've had to listen to a fairy tale depiction of the world under President Obama for seven and a half years. We have things like, my gosh, the economy's booming. We have an unemployment rate of 4.9. It's great. We have just unemployment so low. And, and people think, yeah, but I, I know the real world. I look around and college kids are living at home with their parents. Kids get out of college, they can't find jobs. And that's because the real truth is the labor force partic- participation rate, the real number that talks about employment, is at a horribly low level. We have fewer Americans as a percentage who are able-bodied working. And we come back after the break. I'm going to talk a little more about what Donald Trump had to say. And I will praise him for a lot of his speech about talking truth. And then I'll talk about some things he should have said. And then I'll talk about some really rotten things he did the next day. Don't go away. And welcome back to America Can We Talk. And we can talk. We talk every week on this show, America Can We Talk, every Sunday from 6 to 8 p.m. And if you're listening on the radio, I want to just let you know that you could listen to this show on your computer when you're sitting at home and tell your friends, this show is called America Can We Talk, and we are just now starting our new website. We've had the show and the website called Ladies Can We Talk, and you can still go to Ladies Can We Talk and click on Listen Live, the upper left-hand corner, and listen to this wherever you are in the world. But uh, right now, and, and it'll be by next week, it should be up. America Can We Talk should be up, and you can listen to it live. And I encourage you to tell your friends, because this show is growing. I spoke recently Anyway, it doesn't matter where I spoke, at SMU. But anyway, afterwards, I couldn't believe the number of people came up and said, oh, I love your radio show. It's kind of a funny thing because you never know who's listening. So thank you for listening. But turning back to the serious subject at hand, I want to talk about, we were talking about the GOP convention and Donald Trump's speech. The Democrats were driven out of their minds by the fact that Americans heard what Donald Trump said and liked it. There, what I, I think what many Americans are finding refreshing is that Donald Trump is agreeing with us. He's agreeing with the people who sit at home and we say to ourselves at the dinner table with our family, I don't understand why we don't protect our border. Why do we still have 
lots of illegal immigration coming. We don't know who's coming over the border. It could be Mexican drug cartels. It could be members of ISIS. We don't secure the border. Why don't we do that? Why don't we work harder to defeat ISIS? We watch these horrific incidences, incidences over and over and over and over and over. Every week we start the show talking about a new one. And yet we somehow, we get all we get from President Obama is, you know, we, we condemn this in the strongest possible terms. And Americans are sick of condemn this in the strongest possible terms. They want action. It's another reason that Donald Trump's speech was so good, because he said, we're going to defeat ISIS. We're not going to, you know, wring our hands and fret and moan. We're going to go after them. So I don't know if he will do it, but I think that he means it and I think he will try. So I want to get on to the rest of his speech because it really matters in setting the table for the whole political election season. This was his opportunity, his, you know, primetime opportunity with millions of Americans watching. What do you stand for? What are you going to do? The good things he did say, and I could count dozens more. He went through many of the issues facing America and said, this is going to stop. He talked about trade policies. He talked about how we're going to have trade deals that are fair to America. Um, and, you know, I'll tell you another. He talked we're going to repeal and replace Obamacare. And speaking of that, in the next hour, next half an hour, starting at 630, we'll be talking with someone who has a plan about Obamacare. I'll come back to him in a minute. Um, but I want to say that Donald Trump tried to address the things that keep people awake at night. And he also was very directly critical of Hillary Clinton. This is this is verboten in the world of mainstream media. You don't criticize Hillary. And he just went right for it. And so he talked talked about that she trades access and for favors in the Clinton Foundation with special interest and in other others. And, and, she, and he talked about her trade deals. He talked about the fact that she wants to increase the number of Islamic refugees coming to America from Syria by 550 percent. Let that sink in. We're just watching what happened in Nice, in Paris, in Brussels, in America, in San Bernardino, in Boston, in Orlando. And she's increasing, wants to increase by 550% the number of Islamic refugees coming to America. And so people, I mean, the politically correct crowd says, oh my gosh, Donald Trump is saying mean things you can't say, You, we need to vet some way. And he's been careful. He's crafted better language about it, you know, about this Islamic immigration issue. To start with, he said, you know, we need to put a temporary halt on Islamic immigration to America until we can learn how to vet them. And this was following the head of the FBI, Comey, telling Congress, I have no way to vet these people. So you think about what he said, you think about what Trump said, the left was hysterical, then you, you can't say that. That's, there's a First Amendment problem there, despite the fact that, or despite the reality that people who are not American citizens actually don't have First Amendment rights. They have zero First Amendment rights. They're not citizens. They are foreigners. But what Obama, what uh, Trump did in this speech, he coned it down a little bit. He talked about suspending immigration from nations that are compromised by terrorism. So he's working on a solution that's not exactly, uh, that's not just seeming to be religious discrimination. But he's not just letting the problem go, which is what President Obama and Hillary Clinton have done for seven and a half years. It matters that your policies protect America. So I, I thought his speech was great, but I'm going to criticize a couple of things about it. And I'm really going to let him have it for his conduct the very next day. Day. The things his speech could have done and should have done that would have given some some nestling into patriotism. He could have talked about things you often hear in speeches from presidents and candidates like America is a country filled with good and noble people. 
The American people are good and righteous people. The Americans have stood up over the decades and centuries and defended the, and stood up for the small and defended the, those who were attacked. He could have talked about the Constitution and how we have to have the Constitution is like the support structure of a bridge. If you eliminate it, the entire bridge collapses. Our country collapses if we don't follow the Constitution. He could have and should have talked about that. He should have talked more about the freedom that America has. And this is what I'll just touch on to say Ted Cruz's speech the previous day was, was or the same day, whatever it was, was this was really a beautiful speech, talked eloquently about freedom. And we're going to wait till the second hour to talk about the contents of uh, Senator Cruz's speech at the convention, what happened at the convention, who may have actually orchestrated what happened at the convention. But his speech was a very, it had that love of America, goodness of America feel that would have filled out and fleshed out Donald Trump's uh, acceptance speech at the convention. And I'm sorry he didn't do that. He had a golden opportunity speaking to America to try to set again the table for what America is and stands for in the Republican view of the world. And he really, he blew it on that particular notion. The other other point I wanted to make that I wish he had said, he did make points, and as did his daughter Ivanka make points, about the idea of the protection of women. And I like, she made the point that her dad's company actually employs um, women, more women than men in executive positions, and they pay them equally, they pay, are paid fairly. Those are really good little kernels to put out there because Hillary talks a big game and neither she nor President Obama actually lives up to the game they talk. They just talk. But that, so that was a good thing. I thought it was very unfortunate in a speech in which, which uh, Donald Trump chose to make a special point about the LGBTQ community. To use his term, he used LGBTQ and said, we will protect you from the violence of foreign ideology. And he was referring in part to Orlando and how, you know, in Islam, they, it is justified to kill people simply because they're gay. And he... Trump was saying he's going to protect them. It would have been a great opportunity. And I think a lot of conservatives, especially the evangelicals who came out for Trump, were probably looking for it and waiting for it to say, and we're going to protect the Christians in America. There is a legal assault by the LGBT community, by the by same-sex marriage advocates. There is a legal assault on Christians in America trying to prevent them from actually living their religion. We've talked about these cases many times in this show. Tonight, I can't go into them, but they're cases like when a bakery is told, if you won't bake a cake for a same-sex wedding, even if you know there are 25 other bakeries in town that these, this couple could go to, if you won't do, the state is going to tell you what you must believe about marriage, regardless of what your Christian faith tells you, we tell you what your morals are, and we're going to force you to bake that cake or shut your business down. And folks, this is not a one or two random isolated cases. We are in the dozens of cases now of businesses lost by Christian business owners around this country because we don't protect Christianity like we protect any other religion. We don't protect like we do Islam. It is truly an egregious assault on Christianity. It would have been brilliant for Donald Trump to make that balance in what he had to say. But now I want to get to what he had to say the next day, because this is a man who's saying a lot of things people want to hear. I'm grateful that we have a candidate. We're done with the primary because it was a painfully long primary. But I will say this, the very next day after that primary, within the next couple of days, when Donald Trump had already had a really harsh incident at the at the convention involving Ted Cruz, which we'll talk about in the next hour. But Donald Trump came out and number one has now doubled down on it and said 
He is contemplating forming a PAC to be funded by him for the sole purpose of taking out Ted Cruz, of funding a primary opponent challenger against Ted Cruz. He's doing the same thing, talking about a PAC, to creating a PAC funded by him to take out Ohio Governor John Kasich. This is, these are not the actions of a noble patriot. These are not the actions of American statesmen. These are actions of an angry, tyrannical, intolerant, petty, small man. And this, all of those adjectives I just said, he deserves. And I think you should repeat that because if you don't put ideas out there, then you're the one, you're perpetuating, you're permitting this. This, these are the actions, these are not the actions of a noble man. The other two things he did, he resurrected again the idiotic story about Ted Cruz's dad supposedly having been involved in JFK's assassination has been debunked, has been denied, but he raises it because he has this nasty, nasty, mean streak that is not a, it's not a quality you want in a president. And um, the third thing he, um, he did, I want to just mention briefly, he actually taunted Ted Cruz and said, I don't want your endorsement. Fine. I got to tell you, folks, these kind of things, he's not just taunting Ted Cruz. He's taunting all of his followers. So when we come back, we used to be worried about Obamacare, where we're going to talk after the break with someone who's got some great ideas how to replace it. We still have to do that. Come right back. And welcome back to America Can We Talk. This is Debbie George Addis. I'm so glad you've tuned in tonight. You know, I meant uh, in the last segment to have a little time to give introduction to this our guest tonight. And as many of you know, listen to the show, I love think tanks. And as many of them now say, they are think tanks and do tanks. They they have experts, they come up with policies, and they try to help policymakers understand them, understand the repercussions of policy that are in place and how to improve them. So you may not recall this because it seems with all the Islamic terrorism and the, and the Black Lives Matter movement and the killing of police officers and the conventions, you may have lost track of the fact that one of the central goals of the conservative movement has been to eliminate or at least to get rid of the really onerous impact of many of the provisions of Obamacare. So that's why we have as a guest tonight on the show, we have Dr. Devin Herrick. He is with the National Center for Policy Analysis, one of our advertisers, love these think tanks, and uh, he is uh, extremely qualified. He's an expert um, on all sorts of issues related to medical care in the 21st century and, and how we deliver it and how we can make it better. So, hello, Devin. Well, thanks for having me. I'm so glad you're here. Well, I'm going to jump right in because as I told you, we talked earlier today, these segments go by, it just seems like there's something wrong with the clocks out here or something that goes by so fast. So I want to jump in and say this. President Obama had, he, um, in, he had a, uh, an overview published of the results of Obamacare in the Journal of the American Medical Association. This was just this month, July of 2016. He had an overview of kind of where we are with Obamacare. One of the things that the author of the article was commenting on was that President Obama is largely acknowledging that Obamacare is at least financially failing. It's basically failed. It's basically failed because, for a variety of reasons, um, it doesn't have enough funding. The people who are the most ill are the ones who need the most help, and the people. So it just it has all sorts of problems to it. So I just want to jump past the problems for a second and ask you something because this author wrote essentially he thought the goal of the Obamacare bill was to just get rid of private health care, get rid of private health insurance. And I'm not asking you, you can agree or not on that, but he said the goal was to smash the private health care system with the goal of creating single payer. So 
have we, or do you agree with this guy that there is a concern that with so much damage has been done to the private health care insurance industry and the private health care system that it's the, the government succeeded in destroying it? We're just going to have to surrender to single payer. Well, I do agree that if we don't reform health care now, that indeed in maybe a decade, possibly more, Americans will throw their hands up and, and accept a you know, public plan option, as they call it, whereas nobody would six years ago. So that, that is a very real, real risk. Now, and I, I've been asked this question quite a bit over the last few years. Um, did the Democrats really think they were, that Obamacare would work? I think most of them probably naively did. Now, there may have been a few that quietly knew it wouldn't, and maybe they went along just figuring they'd get their, in the end, they would get their agenda. Uh, but, but, yeah, we, it, it's, there's really no time left. We have to fix our, our individual insurance market is in tatters. I mean, it's, if you've gone out to, to price um, the premiums for individual coverage uh, in Texas especially, but elsewhere is, is very similar they are unaffordable for people who are not getting subsidies. Yeah, you know, I do want to talk a little bit more about the reasons, the lessons learned from Obamacare, but, you know, I would say in the question of whether the the architects of it intended it to fail, I remember so clearly when Obamacare was being discussed in Congress and there was some woman elected, a, a member of Congress from, I don't know who she was, but anyway, she gave a little press conference where she essentially said, you know, I thought I would be against Obamacare um, because I really don't think the government should control health care. But once President Obama promised me, he promised that we're going to have better care and lower rates that would save money. Now I'm for it. And you're thinking, what did he promise you the moon too so you know what i will say i think i will agree with you that there are many legislators that kind of said well you know maybe it's going to work i think though the thinking behind it the people who've wanted for decades to have socialized medicine in america i i we don't have we don't have to discuss it further i will say their motives i'm pretty clear we're just you know this was unaffordably it was unworkable it was too complex it caused confusion and i to me their sense was just make something that can't work but whatever you i think there were i agree with a lot of innocent people who went along with it because they never thought it through enough to realize what happened okay so tell me what are the basic reasons obamacare is failing this whole idea of exchanges what are the what are the faults in the system well, the fault in the system is it changes the way insurance is regulated. Uh, by doing that, it, it essentially they're saying you can wait until you're sick to sign up. Yeah, there's a mandate, but really, it's there's no teeth in the mandate. And and what's and then of course insurance companies are required to cover all who apply regardless of pre-existing conditions. Uh, and the law, the, the Affordable Care Act, uh, which is a badly named law, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> That's also, it, it did away with all caps on benefits. Uh, before, if you know, if you were a modest wage, modest income family, you could choose a flexible policy that that you know had you know limited benefits, you know some cap at some point, and that was fine for most families. By design, Obamacare is is meant to make health insurance a bad deal for most people in order for that very small segment of the population that's very high cost, that they get highly subsidized health care. And the trouble with that is people that are a good risk, who have healthy lifestyles, they don't want to do that. They bail out of the market. They leave the market. They find other options. They pay the fine because it's cheaper. And, of course, you know, it's just untenable. You know, the, 
the cost of, I mean, health insurers are losing money left and right. They're leaving entire markets all the while premiums are sim for a family are higher than their mortgage. Okay, so, the, I mean, I want to be sure our listeners are following this, and frankly, I want to make sure I'm following it, too. The problem in part is that the most, the people who are most likely to have the most expensive care are the ones remaining in Obamacare, or, or the Affordable Care Act policies, the, the health, ex, uh, health insurance exchanges, and the people who are healthy and do not anticipate high expenses would rather pay a fine and pull out of the system, so the ones remaining in the system are going to be exceptionally expensive, and most of them are getting assistance with the cost of their premium. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. 83% of those who are enrolled in the exchange plans are those getting subsidies, uh, which basically means the middle class who are not getting subsidies, they cannot afford Obamacare. So they are maybe getting a job that offers coverage, or or they're just avoiding coverage. I mean, maybe hoping they won't, they won't get caught, or maybe they... Um, are using one of these um, care and share, um, you know, ministries. Well, yeah, it's a funny thing. I'm going to have a guest on the show in a few weeks who lived in Canada, and she had a horrible experience in their healthcare system. And she's just going to try to give a firsthand picture of the misery inflicted by the single payer system, and which must inherently, eventually, it must cap care. I mean, that's part of what happens is you simply can't get the care you need because it's not provided, and you know where to go. So. I think we all know in America that's not our goal. We don't want to be Canada or England, so we need to do something with Obamacare. And I love that your think tank, and again, we're speaking tonight with Dr. Devin Herrick, who is a senior fellow at the National Center for Policy Analysis, and he's talking about alternatives to Obamacare. And this has been talked, or the Affordable Care Act. Um, this has been a subject in many, many different conversations, but you at the NCPA have started, at least, trying to think through what should you do to fix Obamacare. So we have about a minute or and a half in this segment left. Can you give an overview of kind of the themes of what you want to do to fix Obamacare? When we come back after the break, we'll dive in. So what are the overall themes you're trying to do? Well, the overall themes is to repeal Obamacare in its entirety and replace it with Flexible coverage. Let Americans buy what they want to buy in terms of health insurance. Allow individuals fairness in whether they get their coverage through work or individually. Expand America's access to primary care. Reform hospital care to better serve patients. Expand price transparency. Reform the practice of medicine to allow individuals to see the doctors or the nurse practitioners or whatever they want to do. Uh, Of course, malpractice reform. Expanding care coordination. If we can't care for the most sick patients better, we can never reduce our spending. Okay, so we still have a minute here, so or a little less than a minute, but in the plan that you contemplate, what is the vehicle to care for those who truly cannot afford insurance and need something? Is there a summary way you can describe that in 30 seconds? Oh, yeah. I would think a, a risk-based um, tax credit uh, giving though know, to allow individuals to buy co- or to help individuals buy coverage and guarantee renewability so if you get sick while you have coverage you can't get kicked off of your coverage but also high risk pools for those who are, are truly you know cannot you know to become ill and for no reason you know fault of their own just cannot get health insurance through traditional commercial markets those are typically state subsidized and just better care for the sickest patients if 
Five okay. Seconds. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to jump in here because we have five seconds to our break. We're talking with Dr. Devin Herrick, who's a senior fellow at National Center for Policy Analysis, about how we're going to fix Obamacare. I love when smart people think about solving our biggest problems. So right after the break, we'll continue talking to him. And you can be smart to tell your friends we can find a better deal than Obamacare. Come right back. And welcome back. This is America Can We Talk. This is Debbie Georgiatis, and I'm speaking with Dr. Devin Herrick of the National Center for Policy Analysis. And way back before the latest chaos in America was happening, many of the prevailing think tanks were trying to think through how can we do something better than Obamacare, which has been such a dismal failure. In fact, back before I forget to say this, Part of what the report that President Obama gave, which was a he published an overview of the results of Obamacare in the Journal of the American Medical Association. President Obama had this published. He acknowledged in there that many of the there are um, even though he says it's wonderful and all that. um, He also talks about many of the remaining uninsured individuals want coverage. They're still unable to afford it. Uh, They may be unaware of financial assistance. They need more money. I put more money into this. So Obamacare, we could have another whole show just about why it failed and how it failed. But even President Obama, if he's, you know, he's being as honest as a big government guy can be to say it's a disaster. And so brilliant people like our guest tonight, Dr. Devin Herrick and others are thinking through what do you do in a country where you want to provide health care for you want to make sure that the poorest among us have health care or health insurance or whatever you provide for them, but you mostly want to have free market principles and competition, right? I guess I should ask you as a question is part of what you think is a solution is to introduce more kind of free market and competition in the provision of health care. Oh, absolutely. Uh, if, you know, there's only two ways of controlling cost and prices. That's government bureaucrats making decisions for you like they do in Canada or consumers in every other market where we shop and, and buy goods and services, consumers are the ones that tell the merchants, no, I will not pay that price. I will look around. I'll find something cheaper somewhere else. And that, you know, that collective shopping, asking questions, is really what holds prices down in every other market, and it works in healthcare as well. I mean, the research goes back into the 70s. The Rand Health Insurance Experiment found when people were exposed to significant cost sharing, they consumed about 30% less medical care in terms of the cost, and it did not adversely affect their health. And it's, it's true in healthcare today. If, you know, for example, I've talked to people who needed MRIs and CAT scans. Well, the price varies. You can go to a hospital and spend $3,000, or you can go to a freestanding radiology clinic and spend three to four hundred. Wow! If you have questions, <laughs> and it's true of drugs. It's true of all kinds of services. Uh, the one place that's not very easy is in the hospital, but that raises another issue. Are five percent of patients consume, or Americans, you could say, consume half of all healthcare dollars? If we don't get a handle and better care for those individuals, we can never reduce our spending. So our, and the NCPA's healthcare agenda involves care coordination, better care for the sickest patients. And the way to do that really is to keep people out of the hospital. That's the most expensive place to receive care. 
Yeah, you know, I've often, they use that shorthand expression about Obamacare that people will stop running to the emergency room for, you know, um, heavy cold or something that you wouldn't normally go there for. And so, so if, and I, I know hospitals, having recently had uh, family members in the hospital, I know this astoundingly expensive. And, um, and so, yeah, but how do you keep them? What do you do to stop the person from running to the ER every time they have a heavy cold? Well, the way you keep people out of the emergency room is to make it financially costly for them. You know, cost sharing. If you look at ER usage, and there's been a lot of research on this, the most, the common denominator is those who have public coverage, like Medicare and Medicaid. They're far more apt. I mean, I can't think of the stats off the top of my head, but even the uninsured go to the ER less than people with Medicaid by like near a factor of two. I mean, you're twice as apt to go to the ER if you have Medicaid as if you have private insurance, and about that you know, same amount if you are uninsured. And the reason is, is because. First off, doctors don't really like to see, you know, Medicaid enrollees because, hey, it doesn't really compensate them very well. And to some degree, that's also true of seniors. Senior, you know, Medicare does not pay doctors as much. And so oftentimes, if you have a health problem you know, on weekends, after hours, and you're on Medicaid or Medicare, you know, that's your option. Plus, if you're not paying the bill yourself, hey, you know, why not? So I, I think it's important to really teach people that, A, it's going to cost you some money, and B, you do need better options. I mean, there, there there's urgent care centers. There are dock-in-the-box. You know, there's uh, retail clinics and, and, like, CVS Minute Clinics, for example. You know, there are other options, and if you explore these before you get sick, then you'll have a place to go if you have something that happens like an asthma attack in the middle of the night. I, I just love all that you're saying. I love the notion of competition and putting it back in the hands of the patient where someone's thinking, well, I know I need some attention, and if it just seems free, I'm going to zip off to the ER because everything I get here is covered. But if it feels like, you know, I'm going to have to pay something for this, I mean, give it just a moment's thought. Could I just go to the dock of the box around the corner? Is that good enough? Or what, what's the level of concern I have? I love introducing their in every individual American's sense of responsibility about what they need and what it really costs. And it has to cost something. I, I, I think that's all brilliant. I want to shift, though, and ask you about something else. Among the biggest complaints about Obamacare is the employer mandate and the individual mandate, the basic notion that you're being forced by the government, and this is my thing, I'm always off on the Obamacare, is the mandate I must buy insurance is not a role of the government. It just shouldn't be the government's job. But is, do you think we can do the kind of reforms, uh, getting around and getting new, a new system, get rid of, getting rid of the Affordable Care Act, can we do that without the mandates, or is that somehow too interwoven and we're just stuck with that idea in our society? Well, I, I do not support a mandate. If The only mandate that I would ever support would be a mandate that individuals must set money aside, you know, toward their own health care, um, you know, kind of like they do in Singapore. But I, I think more Americans would buy coverage and they could afford that coverage if we allowed them to have the flexibility, our insurance companies, the flexibility to offer the kind of coverage Americans want. That's the main thing that Obamacare took away was insurance flexibility. Uh, bureaucrats in Washington designed our health plans. They're very costly. They're very regulated. And even in middle-class families who lack coverage through work can't really afford the individual coverage anymore. So I, the important thing is let 
insurers create policies consumers want to buy and and, are, and can afford to buy. And that may mean, of course, we they, those policies are devoid of all the Obamacare regulations that drive up the cost of coverage. You know, I just I'm so grateful for people like you. I have to tell you because. I would not be good at this job that you do. I would not be good at trying to sort through the competing concerns and interests and costs. And I, I just am thrilled that someone like you is focusing on all this. And you're doing it through the National Center for Policy Analysis. And you all have come up, I don't know if you call it your, what you've come up with, an entire plan to replace Obamacare. But you've certainly come up with the themes you mentioned a moment ago, and which I loved. And so my next question is, are you trying to, are you bringing these to Washington? Are you working with people in Washington to, to, for, to share these ideas and say this is what we could do? Because I think a lot of legislators, they're afraid of repealing Obamacare or even touching it unless they can show I have something really solid to replace it with. Oh, absolutely. Uh, we have published a congressional brief, which is the NCPA's health reform agenda. Uh, we, have a, we have representatives in Washington whose job it is to, to be a liaison with Capitol Hill. They, of course, do death side visits with members of Congress. They do. They you know, go and visit and talk to the legislative staff, um, legislative assistants. Um, you know, we hold briefings when we can. So, yeah, it's it's publishing an agenda that no one ever hears about, especially policymakers, would have no effect. But yeah, it's our job to give ideas to members of Congress that they can take and run with. Um, if if we didn't, uh, you know, it would just be an academic exercise that would serve no purpose. So yeah, of course we. And I, for you know, for many years we have, you know, I've met with members of Congress. I've testified before Congress on several occasions, and it it's really helps to get to have the outreach. You mentioned if, uh, earlier today, we uh, talked on the phone briefly, that you also are a, a prolific writer, which is a wonderful thing, too. You have a column coming out in Town Hall, and it, I believe it's talking about the insurers pulling out of Obamacare. Can you explain what you're writing about, and you can direct our listeners to where they can go to read it? Well, it's townhall.com. It'll appear tomorrow. And it, it's essentially just explaining that, you know, Obamacare is a failure. It's, it's, it's not even a question anymore. When are the... When, when will Congress finally put it out of its misery? Because what the issue is premiums are sky high. In Texas, um, there are some premiums that will rise 60% in 2016. Uh, Blue Cross has pulled out of New Mexico. Uh, there are, I think, United Health Group is pulling out of numerous markets. I mean, the, I mean, just think about this. The premiums are unaffordable. They're sky high. They're rising at double digits. Yet the insurance companies are losing so much money that they're saying, you know, we don't want to be in this business in, anymore, at least not in the individual market. So I had a reporter ask me just a couple of weeks ago what that meant, and well, I said it means it's a failing. <laughs> the to summarize, right yes. <laughs> yes. It's failing. We're, again, we're speaking with uh, Dr. Devin Herrick, who is a senior fellow at the National Center for Policy Analysis. There is on your website, the NCPA, is it ncpa.org, right? That is correct. I would urge our listeners to go and read this one pager. They have a lot of, uh, just that is a great website, ncpa.org. They have a lot of research there that on all sorts of topics, on a particular topic of tonight of Obamacare uh, and ideas of how to replace it and make it better, make the healthcare system better. There's loads of material. So I urge you to go there. Uh, Dr. Herrick, I want to thank you for calling in so very much. Well, thanks for having me. 
And we were speaking there with uh, Dr. Devin Herrick, who is with the NCPA, one of our advertisers. Love NCPA. And I want to take a minute before, because we're going to go off to a break and then our second hour. Just to tell you a little bit about what I want in the second hour. We are going to talk about the controversy surrounding Ted Cruz's uh, speech at the GOP convention. It's really important to get some facts you probably don't know. I'm going to guess you don't know. Some perspective you may not have heard because you and everyone, we need to be ready to be speaking up about this incredible uh, apparent schism in the GOP and it has to get solved. We have to have Donald Trump win and we can't have the, the supporters of the of T- uh, Ted and other con- the conservative supporters feel they have no role. So it's a very, very vital conversation. Come back after our break and we will talk about America. for our second hour roundtable on America Can We Talk with Debbie Georgiatis. More talking truth about America. And welcome back to America Can We Talk. This is Debbie Georgiatis. I have my second hour roundtable ladies. We have Lori Medina and Mari Sullivan here tonight. And we talked in the first hour about the GOP convention. And I just, we always have at the top of the second hour a one question. We look for rapid fire answers. And this week I just want to ask, Here's the question for conservatives who have been active politically, who and we are now at the point we have Don Trump as our nominee. We have obviously primary voters chose him. We have a swath of conservatives and others who are very concerned about him. We have Hillary on the other side, who is enemy number one. We don't want her, but we feel Lost. I think a lot of people can't quite get their place in the party, and so and they're concerned. They see what Don, what uh, Ted Cruz went through. So, this is the question: What should a conservative in America do in 2016, given where we are? I guess Mari's going to roll. Thank you, Debbie. I am going to support Donald Trump. I like what he said at his uh, acceptance speech that he will honor the American people with the truth. For me personally, the biggest threat to my children, my grandchildren, my country is the threat of terrorism. When Obama pulled out of Iraq in 2011 against the advice of his military advisors, he pulled out of a country that was stable and secure. As Donald Trump said in his acceptance speech, let's look at the record. What have we got? We have got ISIS in a caliphate in Iraq. They stepped into that vacuum in Syria. I'm just going to concentrate about ISIS right now. And they're in Libya. So... What have they done with this caliphate? They've got a country. And when you have got territory, you make money. And they are making billions every year off of taxes from the civilians that they now control, off of banks that they go in and pilfer. Pilfer, thank you. Uh, They also make money off the oil refineries and their other little side businesses like kidnapping, sex slaves, you know, selling artifacts. So they're taking this money, which can be used to buy what? They could buy chemical weapons, biological weapons, nuclear weapons. We're at war with a serious enemy that wants to destroy our cities, our country, and our children. 
we've got to be serious about this. And Donald Trump is taking it serious. And look at what Obama and Hillary have created a Mideast and crisis and a terrorist group that is the most well-funded in history. Very dangerous. So you just got to get behind Trump because we have a huge problem with ISIS, which we do have a huge problem with ISIS. So, Lori, same question. What's a conservative to do in 2016? Well, uh, I definitely consider myself an American conservative. I I consider that first and foremost, Christian first, then American conservative second. Um, For me, it's not quite as easy of an answer as it is for you, Mari. Um, I wished it was an easy answer for me, quite frankly. That It'd be easy if I could just give that answer. Um, As a conservative, I feel like we have two choices. The choices are uh, vote for Trump or leave that one blank on the ballot. Um, Those are the two choices that we have. Now, I'm leaning towards voting for Trump. It seems like every day we do have a terrorist crisis. And you're right, Mari, that is a great concern to me. And they are coming closer and closer to me. Um, and, you know, with the assassination of our of our policemen here in Dallas, um, yes, I am leaning towards casting a vote for Trump. But I'm, I'm not 100 percent. And quite frankly, Trump has a few months to convince me. Um, he has time to convince me. Now, as a conservative, I uh, I I can tell you this, I'm not going to be as active as I have been in previous election, uh, going door to door, giving thousands of dollars, donating, organizing hundreds of people. Um, I'm just not going to do that at this point. Maybe I just maybe I change my mind. We get closer. But at this point, I'm not. Uh, But I would I will encourage conservatives to do is to support other conservatives on the ballot because there are plenty of conservatives on the ballot that we can actually motivate, mobilize, and by by getting other people to support these candidates, that might get the votes for Trump, Mari. You know, it's an interesting, uh, and it's a dilemma, I think, for serious conservatives. I will say I am concerned about ISIS. I'm concerned about lots of issues. To me, the Supreme Court is among the biggest issues I'm concerned about. So my answer is I will vote for Trump. I'm not vacillating on that. But I will say I think that every single patriotic American, you have a job to speak up more in your circles of influence because Donald Trump, as an example, gave a brilliant and I thought powerful speech at the convention never mentioned persecution of Christians. He, Ivanka Trump gave a great speech, put out a lot of false data about women not being paid the same as men. Completely false. We've talked about that on the show many times. So, our job is to inform, inspire, speak up, write, write blogs, comment on blogs, read things online, because you know, the whole thing that when, what, what uh, Donald Trump did, he painted a picture of America that Hillary and, and Obama couldn't recognize. But the reason they couldn't recognize it, it's not in their worldview. It's not in their thought sphere. No one around them says those things. So it matters a lot what you say every day, because we can influence the race by influencing the Trump supporters, by influencing people in our circles to, to hold on to conservative values, to recognize what is so important in this election, because we really are facing serious threats. And we need to, uh, my answer is vote for him and fight like anything for the conservative values. When we come back, we're going to really vet for you the real vetting of what Ted Cruz said at the convention, his speech, the reaction afterwards, and you don't want to miss it. Don't go away.
And welcome back to America Can We Ever Talk? America Can We Talk? This is Debbie Georgiatis. You know, we are in the weekend between the GOP convention, the Democrat convention, and I meant to say at the outset that the, de- the media just was exuberant every time there was the slightest controversy in the GOP convention, and they are now facing their convention starting tomorrow with the DNC chair having to resign. Uh, we're going to talk about this in the next segment, the WikiLeaks uh release of 20,000 emails essentially showing astonishing coordination between the DNC and the media and astounding efforts of the DNC, the Democrat National Committee, to crush Bernie Sanders and and coronate Hillary. Her coronation plans um, are, are falling apart, which is great. Anyway, but this segment, we want to talk about what Ted Cruz, and this is a, he gave a speech at the convention, and um, I thought it was great, but Lori's going to tell us a little bit more about that. Thanks, Debbie. I appreciate it. Um, you know, I, I do want to talk about his speech. And actually, the you know, before we get into the vote your conscience controversy, uh, because that's really the, the crux of the controversy, I wanted to just kind of talk about the actual speech before that part of it. I want Because I think a lot of our listeners, they probably heard so much about the vote your conscience part that they didn't hear or read or see the other part. Um just to back up, you know, when when Trump came out as a candidate and he came out with a slogan, make America great again, you probably remember, Debbie, I was on this show. I was one of the first ones saying, hey, listen, I love that slogan. Make America great again. I mean, it says so many things. I just I really I, I, I said it was, you know, from a marketing standpoint, political standpoint, it was brilliant. I really loved it. But, you know, to me, the make America great again. Great. That's that's the key word in that. And the question is, what is great? And, you know, if you listen to Donald Trump and, you know, to a lot of people support him, especially a lot of times when he talks about, you know, I'm going to make America rich. We're going to have so much money. We're going to we're going to be rich and rich and rich and we're going to get tired of winning. And, you know, he says that over and over. And, you know, and I, I actually think that make America great again doesn't mean America becoming wealthy or prosperous. To me, wealthy and prosperous is a, is a ramification of, to me, being great. And when I define the word great, that it goes back to the uh, to Tocqueville, the, you know, the, one of his famous things of America is great because America is good. And to me, that's our greatness. It is derived from our goodness. And if, you know, for Christians out there, you know, replace the word good and re- put it with righteous. You know, righteous is probably a, a, a just as good a word in there. You know, America is great because we're righteous and because we do the right thing, because we're moral. And if you go back to Ted's speech, to me, he was explaining that what makes us good what makes us righteous? And he talked about freedom. That was one of the main things he talked about in his speech was, you know, our defense of freedom. Um, it, it was it was such a beautifully written speech. And to me, again, he talked about the principles that we stand for as a party. I mean, as a as the GOP, the Republican Party, what we stand for, that we defend. I mean, he actually ended it with defend freedom and be faithful to the constitution that's how he ended it so i mean he he it was such a beautiful speech um so then he gets to the point of the whole vote your conscience um and just to remind our listeners and you know and actually i don't think it was heard by our listeners because it was a few months ago uh one of the questions debbie had on the show was 
what should the delegates do at the convention? And she, you asked us, Debbie, if you remember. And I said, you know what? I, I trust the delegates uh, that they will pray, they will search their hearts, and they will do the right thing, and that they will vote their conscience. I said that on the radio, on the air, several months ago. Um, the term vote your conscience is not is not a, a term that's only been associated with uh, the anti-Trump movement. Uh, that That is a very common term or phrase or to be used, vote your conscience. And, you know, when the speech happened and he got to that part of the speech and he said, vote your conscience, if you, if you watch it or if you listen to the speech, it was instantaneously the booze started. It wasn't like a delayed reaction because, you know, if you're listening to a speech live and you're, you know, you're in a hall, you're in a big room and you're listening to something and someone says something, a lot of times it takes a second for something to click that, hey, I disagree with that or that's not right. That doesn't sync up with my worldview. And uh, but the point is, it was instantaneous boos that occurred. And we know from the reports that have happened that those boos, uh, they were they were prearranged. They were instigated. Uh, they had people in the audience that were ready to boo at that moment. And that's what happened. Um, the fact that they booed Ted Cruz. Uh, so vigorously for so long, to me, I'm embarrassed of them. I am embarrassed. Yes, I am. I'm embarrassed uh, that they would do that. And if you look at the end of his speech, he's talking about the slain Dallas policemen. They continue to boo through that part. I mean, are, are were they that heartless that they, you know, decide to boo through that? No, they were just, I think they were so full of, of defense of Trump, of, you know, uh, waving his flag that they continued to boo. I mean, I, I think they were almost out of control at that point. But, you know, as we all know, Ted submitted his speech to Trump weeks ahead of time. Uh, the Trump camp saw the speech. Everybody knew the speech. Every Trump talked to Ted. They knew that Ted was not going to endorse. They Every, agreed to it. Yes, Everyone knew this. None of this was a surprise. Okay, so Ted's a smart guy. Ted knew that Trump knew. Trump knew that Ted knew. Trump walks in in the end, uh, causes the spectacle. During the speech. Yes, uh, right, towards the end of the speech, causes the spectacle, upstages the speech entirely. And our good friend, uh, Drinda Randall, that was a delegate there, she said when it happened, she was angry when it happened. I mean, it it was very upsetting to her for her to see uh, Trump walk in the way he did. Um, But the point is, is that Ted knew what he was doing. He knew exactly what he was doing. He knew that he was putting his entire future career on the line by speaking his piece and saying what he wanted to say. And, you know, how many times do we hear from Americans of all stripes that they're sick of politicians, they're sick of them making uh, expedient choices for political reasons, for selling their, their, you know, their mother or grandmother down, you know, uh, you know, down the pike, you know, people are sick of that. And here's Ted Cruz, a man who felt very strongly about something. He wasn't willing to say that he endorsed Trump. He said he made a case against Hillary Clinton, and he made a case to vote your conscience to vote for constitutional conservatives. And that's what got everybody upset. Yeah, I was going to, I know you're going to chime in one second, Mari. I was going to say a couple quick things. You know, if the booing hadn't started, we might still be having some conversation on this show about should Ted have endorsed? Should he have accepted speaking thing if he wasn't going to endorse? Even though, as you say, 
Ted and Trump had talked ahead and they both knew he wasn't going to endorse. They had agreed to it. It would be a different kind of conversation, more intellectual. But the whole thing got filled with emotion because... You know, this is, you know, a, a the guy who got the second most votes. He's got, you know, thousands of supporters in the hall and getting booed was obviously a, a new experience um, and a uh, and, you know, made it made a national spectacle. So I mentioned earlier that some of the things Trump did afterwards, I thought were especially egregious. But, you know, I just think the whole and, and, if, and if the reports are true, which are coming, there are more than one source that it was Trump stirring it up. You know, then these are really these are not the actions of a statesman. If you read Ted Cruz's speech, I mean, I praised Donald Trump's speech at the beginning. I can tra- pra- uh, excuse me, praise Ted Cruz. It was very, very good. It was a pro-America, you know, heart and soul, the conservative party kind of, of statement. And um, and if the, it had been quiet and it, we would we would be in a whole different place. And so I don't like that Ted's getting tagged because the people chose to um, to boo. And Mara, you're so patient. Thank you. We have a minute and a half. It's well, yours. Well, all I'm going to say is both speeches were very good. And both men stood up for the rule of law and the Constitution. Donald Trump came up very strong, especially stating that with regard to the Supreme Court, I am going to appoint nominees that will uphold our laws in the United States Constitution. That is very, very important. And I hope that our party can unify behind Donald Trump, because let me tell you, we have got to defeat Hillary Clinton. She will appoint justices that will tear down the Constitution. We'll have a huge regulatory state. Our First and Second Amendment will be at risk. And so will executive orders. They'll be flowing like manna from heaven. Yeah, I agree with all that. I, you know, I get to the state point every time that we got it. I will vote for Trump because we can't have Hillary but the healing process moving forward in the GOP is very challenging. It makes it all the harder of what happened. And, you know, I think of the old Frank Sinatra song, He Did It His Way. <laughs> <laughs> I did it no. my way. You know, I mean, he did. He did it his way. And, uh, you know, you could be angry at Ted for what he did, but he didn't do it for, for political gain. If he was doing it for political gain, he would have, he endorsed, would have endorsed Ted. He would he, have endorsed Trump. This whole thing wouldn't have happened if That's he right. endorsed But I think he did the same thing. Uh, you know, we, we only got 10 seconds. Oh, you can say it for the next segment. But... You know, this whole thing is Ted just taking a stand for principle, as he does in the Senate all the time, won't salute the GOP there and didn't salute the process. And and I I think he stood for some right things. I think it's a very unfortunate thing in this time to have a division in the GOP when we have to beat Hillary. So I don't know how it's all going to work out, but I think Donald Trump... He's the one that's got to win. He needs the votes now. So I hope he can stop the mocking of Ted, stop the mock, and, and just recognize he needs everybody on his team. So anyway, it was a very unfortunate thing. I can't lay the blame at, at Ted's feet for the conduct of the, um, of the delegates. Can you hear us and I certainly hope you can hear us now. This is Debbie George Addis. America Can We Talk. I have my leading ladies here this evening, Mari Sullivan and Lori Medina, and I'm so glad they're here to talk about these issues. You know, we talked about Ted Cruz in the last segment and his speech at the um, GOP convention and all the controversy that arose afterwards. And, you know, I know it's there are a lot of people just saying, you know what, you just, we had, Trump won, Hillary's a really, really um, dangerous possibility as as president, and so we just have to get behind Trump. But I really like to posit the idea: you can like Trump's speech, plan to vote for him, and still support the idea of Ted Cruz. Didn't have to endorse him. He showed up. 
He, he showed the colors. He congratulated him for winning. There was no reason for a person who is planning to vote for Trump, whether you were with him from day one or got converted at the convention or whatever it is, there's no reason you can't support Trump and still respect the idea that not every person, including Ted Cruz, has to immediately salute. I'm, I'm telling you, there are voters out there who loved Cruz as, a, as their candidate and there is what we need to be doing is trying to unify ourselves and not spend a bunch of hysterical time talking about whether or not Ted Cruz should be punished. You know what? People who look back and say, man, he could have been a healer. He could have been a, you know, he could have fixed things. You know, he could have brought us together. There's all sorts of things that could have, could have. But he is the right, like everybody else, to have principles that he can't get with Trump. And I don't think, my two cents is, I don't think his concern about Trump is just because Trump said mean things about his dad and his wife. I think it goes deeper. I think there's a concern in Ted's heart about, and he doesn't talk to me, I don't know this, but concern in his heart about who the heck is this guy. But we're going to change uh, change channels here because, I, you know, you talk about the GOP convention and, you know, the, the media trying to say, my gosh, it's just a mess. It was awful. They're so divided. You know, it was a fabulous convention. It actually was. It was unique. I love that they had very unique lineup of speakers. It was very much like Donald Trump's campaign. In fact, his family showed the colors. They were fabulous. I really thought it was a very good convention and the media tried to get hysterical things going um, and I, they tried to get hysterical things going over the very beginning of it. Melania Trump spoke and claiming it. We're going to talk about that maybe a little later. But anyway, the media has just tried to create a picture of controversy. But now I want to talk about the media and they're being in bed with the DNC as the Democrats convention starts tomorrow. And if you didn't hear the story, I want to be sure you have followed this. The um, WikiLeaks people who hack into people's email and then publish them. So um, beware. I mean, never put anything in email you wouldn't ultimately want in the public because you never know. But they, they hacked in and two really important things became obvious. WikiLeaks leaked 20,000 emails from the Democrat National Committee. The two big themes of this... One, it shows how the DNC orchestrates, works with the mainstream media, yep. runs stories by them. Is this going to be okay? The media will ask them, are you okay with the way you wrote this story? They tell the media the questions they want to be asked. Debbie Wasserman Schultz gets to have a meltdown because someone asked a question she didn't like in an interview. These people are as locked at the hip they are all just part of the vast left-wing Democrat media conspiracy. So I say, I raise this not just because it's interesting to see firsthand what really was happening, but it should be create a huge question mark in your mind if you read or see anything that the media claims about the Democrat convention. You should stop and wait and think, wait, who's telling me this? This is part of the team? Okay, the other thing that came up, and then we're going to dive, we're all going to dive in, but the second big revelation out of these emails was that it became very obvious that the Democrat National Committee, which was at that time, still is, I guess, today, chaired by Debbie Wasserman Schultz, a very pushy, obnoxious um, Democrat Republican from Florida. She's in Florida, right? Yes. Right. Yeah. Yes. Um, 
is was working very hard to crush Bernie Sanders. All through Bernie Sanders' campaign, he kept saying, you know, the DNC is against us, they're working against us. And Debbie Washman Schultz stood right on television, staring out at America, and said numerous times, we are not doing this, we're being perfectly fair, we're sitting back. When you read these emails, what she wrote, the woman was on board to get Hillary elected period. Bernie was going to get crushed. And I'm going to tell you, these two things coming out now as we launch in the Democrat National Convention, if they try to tell you it's peaceful and all you know uh, butterflies and hearts and happy, happy people, they're lying to you. The Democrats are deeply split worse than the GOP. Go ahead. I was yeah. going to say that's absolutely right. And what Donald Trump said at his acceptance speech is he said, we cannot afford to be politically correct any longer. Music, to our ears. He said, if you want to hear carefully crafted lies <laughs> in media spin, the Dems are holding their convention. Hey, be there on Monday. That was a that great was a line. Very good line. Very good line. How apropos, because Debbie Wasserman Schultz is definitely one of those Democrats. If her lips are moving, you can believe it's a 180 from reality. The only thing I'm sad about her not being at the convention is last time her hair looked good was four years ago. Oh, you are tough. <laughs> Okay, she's got the wild hair thing going. Well, yeah. I, it did. It looked beautiful, though, four years ago. But it, she's not done it since. Anyway, so, sorry. That well, was my girl tacky talk. Okay. Well, well, thing, well Debbie, this is why we love radio, because about- <laughs> we can have radio hair. Sorry, I know go we're going to talk about the media's alliance, or you mentioned the media's alliance with the yeah. Dems. Go ahead. And all of this meme about this dark world we live in, of course, they're attributing that to Trump. Here's the reality. We know the hard truths. The dark world we live on, as you said, Debbie, the chaos that we the chaos that we face every day in our headlines is because Obama and Hillary have been at the wheel for the past eight years. That's why the Mideast is in flames. Our economy is in tatters. Our police force is undermined because they tell everybody in our great country that this is a racist nation. We have a black president. Our country has laws that make sure that everybody can compete equally. This is not a racist nation, but the Dems game is to divide and conquer. Donald Trump and the Republicans stand for the rule of law for all people and to convince people, hey, our country is full of opportunity for everyone. Get on board. Yeah, I love that. I, I did love his line back to a, minute, a couple minutes ago, his line about the DNC. I'm just going to tell you the examples because, you know, it's, it's great to say the headline said, but let me just tell you a couple examples. So there's an influential reporter at the Politico, at Politico, a liberal website, and um, he made an agreement, an apparent agreement with the Democrat National Committee to let the committee review the story he wrote about Hillary Clinton's fundraising machine before he, the author of the story, submitted it to his editors. Some writer at Politico, this, you might go there and think that these are kind of neutral people. They write something. He'd actually agreed to run it by the DNC, the Democrat National Committee's press secretary, Mark Postenbach. So the reporter's name is Kenneth Vogel. He sent an advanced copy of an article to the DNC National Press Secretary, Mark Postenbach, who in turn forwarded it to somebody else at the DNC so these are emails coming back from the DNC authorizing what may be said about Hillary's fundraising machine. Stop and think about that. You, we years ago gave up the notion that you could get straight out news, accurate news from newspapers. Walter Cronkite wasn't even that unbiased, but he's long gone. So people turn to the internet. They look and, and you go to the political and you think you're getting news and you're getting DNC talking points. 
Mm-hmm. And let me say that's going to change because Donald Trump takes on the media and crooked Hillary every day, and they're going to latch onto each other. This is going to be a very, very ugly, I think, media Democrat onslaught against our candidate like we've never had. Here's the positive thing. Our candidate is not like John McCain and Mitt Romney. He doesn't play in the daisy field. He knows (laughs) these people are connected to each other. We saw it with Ben Rhodes feeding a narrative about the Iran nuke deal that was completely false, that they had never negotiated anything with the radical imams in Iran, when in fact that's when they started it, that we needed to create the sense of urgency out of a falsehood that there are now moderates there. It's all smoke and mirrors. And I'll tell you what, Donald Trump has taken it to the street every day. It's about time that people wake up to the media Democrat alliance. It's not helping our country stay safe. It is not at all. It's not. And you know what? I think a lot of times people, you go to Politico and I mean, honestly, you don't have I don't have time. I mean, it's my job and I still don't have enough time to read all the sources. But you have to if you go to Politico or Huffington Post and you think you've gotten truth and and you're reading an editorial, an article. What I want to urge people is go to the sources they quote when they say, well, blah, blah, blah. Hillary's doing this, whatever it is. What is that based on? their own blather or do they have a link are they telling you i mean this is the kind of thing you have to do because otherwise you get duped by the media into in, into just you you don't have a view of reality you have the obama view of reality says everything's fine i'm sorry we have 15 seconds in the segment Lori. well and that's all the more reason people need to go out and there's two great movies anti-hillary movies coming out the dinesh d'souza hillary's america and then the the clinton cash movie is coming out too and so we need to tell our friends and family go see these movies learn the truth about what hillary's all about Amen, sister. This is America Can We Talk. We talk truth about America. One more segment. And so we actually cannot wait to talk to you in the next segment. Um, Kind of a a lot of media coverage and also what the Virginia governor is trying to do to throw this election to Hillary and his state. Outrageous. And welcome back to the final segment. We cannot believe every week we get to this point. Thing, how can we only have one 11-minute segment left? We have to talk fast. This is Debbie George Addison, America Can We Talk. My roundtable buddies tonight are Mari Sullivan, Lori Medina. We um, have great conversations on air and sometimes off air. And uh, we just all appreciate so much being able to be. It's honestly, having this radio show gives us an opportunity to speak about things that we're that are on our hearts that we're, we this is I mean this show as I say all the time it's about preserving the great exceptional nature of America and so and this show gives us that opportunity so whatever issues we have I try as often as I can to tie it back to America. I do want to take a moment before we hit our last topic to thank the sponsor for this show. Funding for Ladies Can We Talk is provided by GC Works, and they are a Dallas-based company. They perform research in advanced technology and deliver innovative approaches to the oil and gas industry. Couldn't do it without them. God bless them. Thank you so much, GC Works. Okay, in the final segment, you know, we were talking about the uh, GOP convention and switching to the Democrat convention. This WikiLeaks scandal we were talking about has led to Debbie Washerman Schultz's resignation. And so talk about starting a convention in a mess. You know, this is... Um, you know, challenging for them. And Hillary is, she made a VP choice this week of uh, uh, Tim Kaine. And the reason I want to hit on that is this. The Democrats are 
what, regardless of the happy face they put on, regardless of the confidence they attempt to exude, they are very worried about this candidate. She just got skewered by the FBI. She escaped by the skin of her teeth being prosecuted. She has the Benghazi deaths hanging over her head. She has the Benghazi movie 13 Hours out there. Lori just mentioned the two other movies. Oh, I saw America, Hillary's America, Dinesh D'Souza's movie. And um, I got to interview him in person. So we have an interview coming up. Um, uh, Dinesh D'Souza. Dinesh D'Souza. Yeah, thank you very much. <laughs> Dinesh D'Souza, who's just a fabulous, uh, brave patriot. So he made this movie, Hillary's America. So, you know, there's just a lot that, that there's a lot of public attention on who Hillary really is and concern about her. So in uh, there are people who are just going to do whatever they can to get her elected. And that would include, I think, her choice of a Virginian. Tim Kaine is her running mate. It's one signal. She's very, very worried about the state of Virginia. It's considered a swing state. It should be Republican, but it has a lot of government employees living, especially in Northern Virginia, and that's her problem. So this, I want to tell you this story that has, that touches on so many things we care about on this show. So in the great state of Virginia, we have a governor, Terry McCullough. He's a Dem. He's a Democrat. He's a longtime Clinton ally. He was the DNC chair. During yes. while Clinton was president. Yes, yes. Longtime friend of theirs. Totally intertwined with them. Yep. So this governor of Virginia attempted to move toward granting felons or ex-felons, people who committed a felony, gone to prison, served their time and come out. He was trying to make a policy to say that in Virginia you can vote if you were a felon. And in most states you cannot. Once you committed a felony, one thing you surrender is your right to vote. That's an issue for another day, whether you should or should not, whatever, you know, you can have that debate. But Governor McAuliffe discovered that when litigation ensued, that the Virginia Supreme Court said that he could not grant blanket I don't know if they call it amnesty, but blanket right to vote to all these ex-felons that under the Virginia state constitution, he lacked that authority. He couldn't just list all the felons and say, hey, have at it, go vote. So listen, I the numbers, I have the number I had 200,000. It's an enormous number of votes that he could add to the Virginia vote calculation by doing this, by freeing up these... Uh, it made these felons able to vote. The Virginia Supreme Court ruled against him, said the constitution of the state does not permit you to do this. So you know what he's doing? Let me ask you, do you think he is, oh, go ahead. Well, I was gonna say, do you think he is just, you know, sur- submitting or, or su- saluting to the court and saying, well, you know, we have rule of law here? No, or- of course not, Debbie. He's being a good soldier for Hillary, and he is, by executive action, contravening state law and the Supreme Court ruling and going ahead individually as governor signing $200,000. I mean, pardon me, 200000 I was thinking of Hillary, $200,000. <laughs> He is signing 200,000 pardons yes. to clinch yes. the vote Individual. in this swing state. Yes. Literally signing, no auto pin, literally signing each and every single one of them. This is the determination. It's just two things. The determination to, he is completely circumventing the spirit of the law in Virginia. He's saying, okay, I can't give a blanket pardon. I'm going to give 200,000 individual ones, which he does apparently have authority to do. But so two things is talking points. One is... What does that say about who he thinks felons vote for? I mean, do criminals vote Republican? I don't think so. He's assuming they're Democrat votes, which kind of says a lot about the Democrat Party. But he's also saying to the people of Virginia, 
you don't really get the right to vote in this election. The people who who are legally legal voters, I'm going to override your majority. Mm -hmm. I'm going to override the people. I'm going to. It's like shipping in from some other country. I'm shipping in people who have no right to vote. And between now and the fall, I'm going to make them all able to vote. Well, for all the millennials that weren't around when Clinton was president, they need to look at this situation and say, is this what they want to see for the next eight years? Because this is the kind of stuff that Clintons do over and over and over again. And we all had to live through it. And, uh, you know, I mean... (laughs) You're this right. is oh she, he's an operator win. he's an operator of the Clinton level and that's not yep. a compliment it's not and this also says a lot about the rule of law just in general the idea that our goals as a Democrats to get Hillary elected are more important that the governor a high profile person. I mean, this is, if we're talking about this and we're in Texas in Virginia it has to be huge in the news and he's deciding I don't care I'm so determined to make her gov- her president. I'm just going to, I may, I mean, I don't know if he could get impeached over this or prosecuted, but I wish he could. Of okay. course not. So, yeah, it's true. It's, it's Democrat states. They do whatever they want. Okay. Well, i got to tell you, we, we have usually this, we used to have a cruise through the news and we have, you know, tweets, tweets and quotes. And so we're trying to put all that in the last five minutes tonight. But we love this last segment to touch on a bunch of quick stories. We have tweets and quotes. I mentioned at the start of our show after Hillary characterized Donald Trump's convention speech is dark. She used the word dark and she furrowed her eyes and looked all beady eyed and evil. You cannot believe the number of media sources that picked up that story. I mean, it went on and on and on. The talking heads at CNN, who were also in, uh, very heavily involved in the WikiLeaks leak, but the CNN people immediately began to call the speech dark. Van Jones of CNN said, I'm terrified by it. <laughs> Okay, this is kind of good. I'm terrified by you, Van Jones. Yeah. Jake <laughs> Tapper, when I asked if the speech painted too dark a picture of life in the U.S., campaign chair Paul Manafort said Trump told the truth. So Jake Tapper is using this. You have the BuzzFeed, Donald Trump accepts the GOP nomination with a dark vision of America. You have Washington Post, Donald Trump's dark speech to the Republican National Convention, annotated. You have New York Times, his tone dark. Donald Trump takes GOP mantle. Rolling Stone, watching Donald Trump's dark, fear-mongering RNC speech. I could go on and on and on, but it's getting redundant. This is, this is the media echo chamber of Hillary and the American left. And these are all these sources you might somehow think are telling you the truth or trying to paint a picture. They are marching lockstep with Hillary. It's going to take an uprising of patriotic Americans to say, we're not listening to you. We're going to get the facts ourselves and we're not going to get on this Hillary train, which could not be more disastrous. And I love the fact that Hillary's hypocrisy and the media's hypocrisy is out there for all to see. She talks about fear mongering. That is the Democrat 101 playbook. Yep. Pitting everybody against somebody else. They they live on that. They thrive on that. Oh, they've created the, the you know, they've created the suspicion between races, this entire racial tension that's existing in America today is because there's been so much talk out of the Democrats about exactly, planning Debbie. suspicion and hostility and resentment. So that was my dark thing. Okay, we we're trying to hit I, I wanna be fair. We you guys have tweets over there? I can Yes. I, I I do. I have a couple. The first one, it's a it's a meme that's been floating around uh Twitter and it says uh, please be patient America Trump is still trying to beat Ted Cruz Hillary will just have to wait 
Okay, I love that. Good point. <laughs> I, I makes know. the big point. Yes. Shut up already Shut about Shut up Ted. about Ted and go fight Hillary. Go fight okay, Hillary. Okay, the other thing real quick is there was an article on uh, Conservative Review, and it was talking about what unification of the party of the GOP, what it meant, and how that we have shared values, and that our shared values cannot just be Democrats bad. That cannot be our unifying value. It has to be more than that. Back to the idea of greatness and goodness and freedom the Constitution in America and, the rule and our of Constitution. Law, so, which so is what our that, party stands so, for. So that's up to <laughs> and Donald Trump. And that is up to Donald Trump. So I, I am asking, I'm calling out for Donald Trump to do that. Let that be our unifying I think for, value. Yeah. And, and also, here's a great uh, story for you ladies. Did you know, according to our great Secretary of State, John Kerry, air conditioners are... a as big a threat to our country as ISIS. Okay. And this is exactly the hard truth we need to and know. And that's not the onion. This is not the onion. No, this is a real this story. This is a real story. This is our this great This is the global Secretary climate change guy. That's what he's state. talking about. Global yes. climate change is the worst threat than ISIS. I don't know. I'd take a little warmer temperatures. And here yeah. is the great tweet in response to this story. John Kerry is as big a threat to the United States State Department <laughs> as Hillary Clinton was. Uh, I'd say as big a threat to the United States uh-huh. as Hillary right. Clinton yeah. is. Yeah, that's very good. Excellent, excellent. Okay, I did want to take, uh, we only have like a minute and a half here, just a quick touch on the story. You may have seen that the voter ID law in Texas was overturned by the Fifth Circuit. Short summary is this. Over 30 states have voter ID laws. It, the voter ID law was not struck down in its entirety. We will have the voter ID law in effect in this fall's election. We're going to have the people who uh, can show the court they have a legitimate basis to say they can't gain access to uh, a, a, a voter a picture ID, that we're going to um, find a way that they can vote just with their voter card with no picture. So the left is trying to paint this as a CEO, this evil, rotten, crazy Republicans in Texas. This is not voter suppression. This is simply trying to promote voter integrity. If you don't have that, you know what? You don't have real elections. They're just a joke. And this, and actually the appellate court also found that the trial court had no basis to say the legislature intended to harm minorities. So it was a pretty good ruling, really, for the conservatives. Okay, Debbie George Addis, America Can We Talk. Follow me on Twitter at Debbie Can We Talk. Never miss a show. We love talking to you. We love talking truth about America. Come back next week. Sweat and Thank you for listening to America Can We Talk with Debbie Georgiatis. To learn more or to contact Debbie, go to AmericaCanWeTalk.org. America Can We Talk. Truth About America. America.